Anybody remember the 97 Chiefs season? Not a single person. With that. Brent, you got to help me out here, man. Yeah. What's that? No, 97 was the 13-2 the and two season. First round playoff by home field advantage against the Denver Broncos. Anybody remembering now? Uh, yeah. Uh, January 4th. Uh, whatever, 1998, it was below freezing. About a week before, Kansas City put the tickets on sale. They had locations kind of all around the city. And uh, to keep people from showing up like four or five days in advance, they did like a little lottery system where when you got there, you took a raffle. And at a set time, they drew raffles, and that determined your place in line. So all you had to do is show up kind of before the deadline, get your raffle, and... Uh, and that would tell you how close to the front you would be. You could only buy two tickets per person, and when they were out, they were out. And so my brother-in-law and I got up early before work. We went out. We got in line. We both drew great raffle numbers. We're right up toward the front. So we each bought two tickets, and they were just normal season price. That was the, the fun part. They didn't, like, jack them up because it was a playoff or an important playoff. So normal season price. So we each bought two tickets, and we were thrilled to get to watch – um, the Chiefs played Arrowhead uh, in a playoff game. But purely out of curiosity, we called, um, you know, a ticket place, a scalping place, just to go, hey, we got four tickets. Uh, what would you give us for them? And I can't remember the exact amount, but I know that we worked it out to where we could uh, go to the Embassy Suites, watch the game in the warmth of the hotel, buy a really nice dinner for the four of us, Stay the night, get up, have the big breakfast at the Embassy Suites, and take home about 400 bucks a piece. So that's about how much we could get for the tickets. But we were diehard fans, and we decided to go to the game instead. If anybody knows my wife at all, you know she does not like the cold. And so, and if you know anything about human nature, you know that if Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So, and if Daddy ain't happy, don't nobody care. But... But if <laughs> that's the most amens I've ever gotten in a sermon. So we go to the game. It's freezing, absolutely freezing. And the, but we get to watch the Chiefs take a lead. Feels like they're going to hold on to the lead until we get to watch John Elway, the enemy of God, um, uh, execute another fourth quarter comeback and um, beat the Chiefs on their home turf and knocked the Chiefs out of the, out of the playoffs. And so they had a 13-3 and three season. What's funny is when I was trying to remember this story, I texted my brother-in-law last night. And I said, do you remember what year it was that we went to see the Chiefs in the playoff? And his response was, we should have sold those tickets. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was what he sent back to me. Twelve years later, we should have sold those tickets. But if I'm honest, if the same situation happened today, I can almost guarantee, I'm 90% sure, we'd go back to Arrowhead and freeze our butts off again to watch a 13-2 and two team um, play in the, in the playoffs, which begs the question, why? Why would we do that? Why would anybody do that? Like the second it starts to get just a little bit uncomfortable, Arrowhead should be empty. Like we have technology now where they put the, the first down – line and the and the line of scrimmage on the field for us like it we replays we've got you know chips in the kitchen and the beer is like so much cheaper than the stadium so it, like all the reasons to stay home are there and yet we go 
we go and we can't wait to go and make some noise and have some fun. Along with that, why do we go to concerts? Do you know how much body odor is in that picture? Like, we cram ourselves into these crowded places. And anybody who has a decent set of headphones knows the music sounds better in headphones than it does like that, when it's just so loud you feel it more than you hear it. It's, it's not because you like the music. There's something in, in the atmosphere that we draw to. In that best concert you've ever been to? Anybody? Oh, really? <laughs> All right. I was actually, Brent, you got to have one. Boston? You know what? I saw Boston and uh, the Beach Boys play together. And it was like a sit-down concert. Like most of the concerts I had been to up to that point were like you stood up and screamed and went crazy. I, I went to see my girlfriend, wanted to see Boston, the Beach Boys. I was like, seriously? The tickets were a fortune. We went. Boston did like a solid hour. The Beach Boys did a solid hour. Then they did a solid hour together. Like it was three hours of just, and you knew every song that they played. It was the most incredible concert ever. Up until now, I was thinking about this last night. I, would, I saw Arrowhead or uh, Aerosmith um, play with Guns when Guns N' Roses were opening for him, like back in the day, and uh, and that has always been like in my head, like my favorite concert ever. And I was thinking about it, and Aerosmith's drummer did a drum solo on this drum suit that he had, where he had like pads on his suit, and when he would hit them, it would make a sound, and when he would stomp, it would make the kick sound. And he walked around the stage playing. And what's amazing, that's framed in my head when I'm 15, 16 years old as the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Probably the worst drum solo. Like, he's playing electronic drums on a suit. Like, it's not good drums at all. It's just that we had never seen anything like that before. So we were like, I'm losing my mind. But, uh, yeah, so there's something about the atmosphere we draw to. Likewise, why do we feel like our personal life, when we fall in love, when we start dating someone, when we marry someone, why do we uh, feel like we have to share that with the whole world? Because we all know it's not official until it's Facebook official. Right, that's how we know when it's real. It's not real until it's Facebook real. And so there's something in all these questions that we're going to talk about for the next month, for the next four weeks. We're going to talk about why we do these things. We're doing it as a series we call... Uh, the way of worship. And tonight is designed for worship. So let's look at our scripture for tonight. Today. Ha! Yeah. Man. That's going to take a while. That, just, just bear with me. All right. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. This is the word of the Lord. Short passage tonight. Super familiar story. We all know this. But usually when we read this, we read it to set up what happens next. We just kind of read this because we know what Adam and Eve do. We know they kind of, uh, they have this one command. That's all they have to keep. They have this one rule. We also know uh, they break it and it made a mess. You know, this is kind of the mess we shake our heads at every single day. Like, why is life so hard? Why is, why do terrible things happen? Why do some people do really dumb things and hurt other people? Like, we ask these questions all the time. 
And we know the answer is because we live in a broken world. We live in a world that was fallen. The scripture gives us probably the best explanation uh, that, that I've ever found, and that is that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Things are broken. Things are not right. So generally we talk about these verses um, for, uh, to set up what happens next. We talk about these verses to kind of as a prep for what's about to come. But what I'd like to do this morning is look at these verses in terms of what they might say about our original design. Like, let's pretend that, that Adam and Eve don't eat that fruit. Let's pretend that Adam and Eve don't kind of break the human race and, and put us in this tailspin. Like, what does it say about humanity uh, if, if Adam and Eve don't fall and, and our history would be dramatically different? Our scripture would be dramatically different. The majority of scripture wouldn't need to exist because scripture is kind of the story about God's redemptive plan after the fall. The majority of scripture is how God chooses in this world to interact with humanity. So we wouldn't even have most of the Bible if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen. But we would have this verse still. This verse would stand. Because this verse says more about how we were created, who, who we were created to be, than what happened next. So this verse shows us a tiny glimpse, a glimpse of what our lives might look like if we didn't live in a world broken by sin. Today, I really, don't want to, I really only want to pull out one little aspect of our original design, and that's this. You were not created to be the biggest thing in your life. You were never created to be the biggest thing in your life. If Adam and Eve had not fallen, if we lived in a perfect world, if there was no sin, no brokenness, no pain, no way for people to hurt other people, you would still not be created to be the biggest thing in your life. God told Adam and Eve, I have a plan. I have a way. I have, a, I have some guidelines and some rules for you. And even if we lived in paradise, most of us think paradise would be to get our way all the time, to have everything we want, to not have people tell us no, to not have to, to, to suffer and go without, to, to basically be 100% free. And what this verse tells us is that's not what we were created for. We were not created to be the biggest thing in our life. So no matter how good the world was, if the Chiefs won the Super Bowl every year, you still would not be created to be the biggest thing in your life. You're not supposed to be on top. We'd still have to be obedient. This tells me we were designed to live with an acute awareness that there's something bigger and more important and more valuable than ourselves. That's what we were made for. Adam was put in a garden and immediately he was put in this relationship whereby he knew there's something bigger, something better, something more precious, something more beautiful than me. And I am supposed to live underneath that. I'm supposed to live in reverence and submission to that. So I believe that although we tend to try and ignore our design and make ourselves the center of our existence... In our core, our wiring shows up. In our core, something in us knows that there's something bigger than me that I want to tap into. By nature, we worship. 
That's what we do. That's, and, and we might pretend like we don't, but that's how we're wired. And this is tricky in a fallen world because being wired for worship doesn't mean that we worship well. It just means that we worship because we do get things wrong. We do mess up. We do aim our worship at the wrong things. Often we misplace our worship. And this can be sneakier than we might realize. Job gives us a great picture of this. Job, we believe, was probably the oldest physical text we have of Scripture. It was a very, very, very ancient text. And Job says this about worship that I've always found interesting. Have I looked at the sun shining in the skies or the moon walking down its silver pathways and been secretly enticed in my heart to throw kisses at them in worship? If so, I should be punished by the judges, for it would mean I had denied the God of heaven. It's always been a very confusing passage for me, because we tend to think of idolatry, or what the Bible would call idolatry, basically misplacing our worship. We tend to consider that to be like this intentional, like deliberate thing we do. And Job kind of shows how easily it can happen. Because he says, if I'm just walking along, I look at the sun and, and I'm just a little bit enticed to kind of throw a kiss at it and worship, I would be off. That would be off. It was very common in Job's day to worship the sun and the moon. It was, it was very common really all the way up to almost Jesus and beyond to worship the moon and the sun and the stars. And uh, in fact, there's still some... Uh, religions on the earth that do this. And Job recognized that. He recognized the temptation to, to look at the value and the power and the necessity of the sun, the, the goodness of it, the, how much we need it, what we gain from it. And he knew that that would uh, might birth in his heart this little desire of worship. Like he knew he was wired to look at something that impressive, that amazing, and go, that is the center of my world. Have I looked at the sun shining in the skies and the moon walking down its silver pathways and been secretly enticed in my heart to throw kisses at them in worship? Job's not talking about atheism or abandoning his religion to consciously join another religion. Job's talking about the subtle and sly desire to do what comes so naturally to him anyway because of his design. As though it's the easiest thing in the world to look at the size and power and value of the sun and pay it homage. And the reason for this is because he's wired for worship. That's what his heart wants to do. That's what his heart will most naturally do. It's just what we do. So a huge part of the Bible becomes not so much about trying to get us to worship God. A lot of it sounds like that. But most of it's actually trying to get us to worship better. Because the Bible acknowledges that we just worship. That's what we do. It's who we are. And so the Bible is not so much about trying to get somebody who doesn't worship to worship, but more about getting somebody who worships to worship right. To worship what they were created to worship. Once we realize this, a huge part of the Bible starts to sound different. For instance, 1 Corinthians 12. Anybody familiar with this passage? I'm going to read it real quick. It goes, Dear brothers and sisters, 
Regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives, I don't want to, you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagan, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but, he, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. The one person, the Spirit, gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another, and someone else, the one Spirit, gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles, and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. This is a heavily contested passage of Scripture. A lot of people like to debate what is in this. Uh, But typically we use this passage to discuss what are the spiritual gifts? What are what we call the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And we, we make a list and we consider this to be kind of the exhaustive list of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we use it to talk about whether it's tongues or miracles or healings or interpretation or prophecy. We tend to get hung up on the gifts that are listed here. But Paul, when you look at how he opens this, you know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. This is a passage about worship. This isn't necessarily a passage about which spiritual gifts are valid and which ones aren't valid and what kind of spiritual gifts we should seek and not seek. This is a passage about worship. And when we look at Paul's time, the time he's writing this and the place he's writing it to, Corinth was a kind of a Greek, it's a Hellenistic uh, city and it's, it's uh, really heavy in Greek culture, some Roman culture, mostly Greek culture. And it was a polytheistic area. They serve many, many gods. And you would usually kind of draw to your uh, god that you, you know, kind of resonated with. But you wouldn't hesitate if, if you needed, you know, crops or you needed a good vineyard to go over to Dionysus and make a sacrifice over there because, you know, you really want a good wine crop this year. And so they were used to many, many gods. And so when Paul talks to them about worship, he says to one person, The Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice to another. The same Spirit gives the message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another and to someone else. The one Spirit gives gifts of healing. He gives the person power and on and on and on. So in this polytheistic culture where it would have been completely natural to assume if there's multiple gifts, there's a God in charge of each one of them, or maybe even to tilt things so much where they start to worship the gift itself rather than the giver of the gift, Paul feels like it's his job to make sure they know there's one spirit. And the, and so the core of this passage isn't, isn't the gift. The core of this passage is there is one spirit that we should worship. One spirit that we should worship. So Paul emphasizes this passage. Seems to be it doesn't matter what gift, what blessing, what good thing. emphasis is on where it comes from, the Spirit. Only God is worthy of worship. So 
Job in his culture sees this, this element of his culture that is very likely to grab his attention and, and maybe to be so big in his eyes that it might draw his worship. The sun, the moon, the stars. And he recognizes this temptation in his culture to, to maybe turn toward those things. Paul, likewise, in his culture, sees this, this move of God that's creating this, this spiritual awareness and he recognizes this temptation to go, to get it wrong. This temptation to go, these, these, these gifts and all the different gods that these gifts represent. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. I, I recognize that temptation, but that's not how this works. There's one God, one spirit. Which leaves us with the task of identifying in our culture, what are those things for us? What are those things that are good things, great things, things we desperately need, things like the sun, but that have the, the tendency or the temptation to draw us away from God, to, 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 to actually draw our worship. Money? Right? Money's a great thing. If you've got too much, I'll take it. Like money's a, money's a good thing. You can do a lot. You can do an amazing amount of good with money. But money take, makes a terrible God. It makes a terrible God. You start to worship it and you go down fast. Power? Well, that's all over CNN and Fox, isn't it? Power. Not a bad thing. You can do a lot of good in power. Terrible God. Sex, fame, your political affiliation. Hello. Not as many amens on that one. Not bad things. Not bad things. But how quickly do they, do they draw us and they say, I'm the focus. I'm what's important. I'm the most important thing. You have to get this right. I'm going to hide behind something. Sometimes our, our patriotism and our nationalism, don't throw anything at me. Got real quiet. Amazing things. I am so glad I live in this country. I'm so blessed to live here. I'm not bashing America, but boy... It's a thin line when America becomes God. None of these things are bad. Most of them are amazing. Most of them we desperately need. Most of them to get rid of them would be like getting rid of the sun. Like I'm, I'm not saying these things aren't important. I'm just saying we've got to be super careful that they don't draw our worship. But then we're like Job. What if... What if in looking at this sun, this thing that sustains me, I get tempted uh, to give it some of my worship? Then I would be wrong. I would be abandoning God. Got quiet, so I must be doing something right. Just like the sun and moon were in no way evil to Job, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit were in no way evil to Paul. easily become evil if we start to worship them. They make terrible gods. How many of you guys have seen a relationship? I mean, love's a beautiful thing. Love between a man and a woman. Love between a parent and a child. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. The world, I, I, I'm 
I'm a romantic at heart. I'm a, I'm a sap. I love love. How many of you guys have ever seen a relationship where uh, the love becomes the God? When, it's, when somebody throws themselves so fully into this other person that they just crumble and fall apart, that you can tell uh, the love, this amazing thing that sustains us, makes a terrible God. It really does. That's not, we, we should never worship the relationship. Does that mean the relationship is bad? Of course not. Of course not. The very first of the Ten Commandments says you must not have any other gods but me. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens and on earth or in the sea. When we start to realize that this is not some like weird narcissism on God's part, where God's like, I want, I want to get all your worship. I don't want you to give anybody else any worship. When we start to realize that God knows this is how we're wired, he knows that we're going to worship something. I, I've had cheeseburgers that I swear I, I fell into idolatry over. Like, I'm just like, this is the best thing that has ever been made. This is so good. Like, it's, he knows that we're going to worship. We're going to, I mean, there is no evangelist, you know, of all the evangelists that go around and tell everybody about Jesus, there's no evangelist like uh, somebody with a brand new crush and a brand new boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, they go and tell everybody about it. Like, you know, like, it, it's, just, like it's just natural to share what they're worshiping, what they're passionate about, what, what, what they're, they've given their heart fully to. You know, and they, they want you to know just how in love they are too. It goes on Facebook. They want everybody to know how in love they are. If you're not in that place, you're just like, my gosh, how many posts do I need of you guys looking cute in front of things? I wouldn't say that. But God is saying, I know you're going to worship. I know you will because that's how I made you. From the very beginning, before anything was broken, I said, you are not on top. You're not on top. There's, there's something bigger than you that you're going to aim yourself at. I'm calling the shots. I'm, I'm running the show. And you will, you will flourish when you're in that relationship. When, when you recognize that, that, that the, my way is the best way. And then when you distrust that way and you go, oh, I, think this, I think we could do better this way. I think we make this choice. We've got this, God. That's when everything falls apart. It's how we aim our worship. So how do we respond to this? We worship. It's just what we do. A lot of times we mix up worship with like singing and putting our hands in the air and, and, and that, like we mix that up with others, but that, that's, that's an element of it. That's part of what we do. We're actually going to talk about that one week uh, this month. But that's worship. What worship is when we, when we recognize something greater than us and we, we give it our, our attention and we give it our, our focus and we, we, we change the course of our life for that thing. We just worship. It's what we do. Go to a Chiefs game and tell me that those guys aren't worshiping. Some of those guys in the crowd. <laughs> Lunatics. I mean, ah! like they're screaming and cheering and going nuts for somebody they, they do not know and probably wouldn't like if they did know. 
Like some of these guys that I think are amazing, when I hear the stuff they've done, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so embarrassed that I was a fan. Like, <laughs> listen to someone talk about their favorite food, the significant other they're newly in love with. Try to convince a Beatles fan that they're not the best band in history. The list goes on and on and on. Here's the thing to remember. When we worship God, we have all of his bounty to enjoy. It's not like you, you have to give up money and give up you know, the things you enjoy and give up all this stuff so you can just worship God. When we have it right, when you go back and look at Adam and Eve, if you have it right... My favorite part of that is you can eat of anything in the garden. That's the part we miss. We focus on the, the, oh my goodness, they only had one rule. They couldn't keep the one rule. We focus on the one tree. That thing started with you can have whatever you want. If you get the order right, you can have whatever you want. All the other things are amazing blessings. It's a, it's a, it's, God is on top. There's, you can enjoy your money. You can enjoy the Chiefs. You can enjoy the most delicious hamburger on the planet. When, when God is on top, the rest is, is there for us. When God's not on top, when we get the order wrong, everything falls apart. Adam and Eve got the order wrong. They had everything. They had everything. Because they wanted to be on top, the second they switched the worship, they lost everything. So it's not like this isn't a message of you have to forsake all this stuff and make sure that God is the one and only. No, it's just saying make sure God is on top. Make sure God is the center of your life. Make sure we sing that that your praise will ever be on my lips, that that you're the center of of my day, that when I wake up, you're... You're what I think about when I go to work. You're, you're why I'm there. When I'm raising my kids, I'm, I'm, I'm raising them with you in mind that, that I'm not just you know, trying to survive having kids in my house. It feels like that a lot of times. But the truth is I'm, I'm trying to raise kids toward God in the way God wants them raised. He, he's the center of what we do. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about what worship looks like. We're going to talk about what it looks like when we worship together. Why do we worship together? Why do we sing? Why do we, why do we gather? Why do we sit? You know, this is, is weird. A lot of preachers I talk to, you know who they, who they watch to get tips and pointers on, on how to preach? Comedians. Because those are the only two people who stand up in front of people for 45 minutes and talk. Like, think about it. Who else just... Who else just comes and sits and listens to somebody talk? Like it's, we just don't do it. So why do we do it? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about worshiping in your everyday life. Everyday worship. What's that look like? What's it look like to worship God in rush hour? It does not mean turning on Caleb. <laughs> if, you love, if you like Caleb, that's okay. I, I don't. And, uh, and, I, and I let everybody know that. But what's it, what's it look like to, to worship God when you're changing diapers and 
mowing your lawn. We're going to talk about that. And last, we're going to talk about contemplative worship. What's it look like to worship all by yourself? To worship all by yourself. What's, what's funny is we're, a lot of us are really good at serving. We're really good at working for God. We're really good at giving to God. We're really good at doing for God. What's it look like to be with God? Where there's nothing to do. How many of us can sit in silence with God for 30 minutes? We do this with our, with our fifth and sixth graders downstairs. We start every, uh, every lesson with two minutes of silence. We give them a kind of a mental prompt. Think about this for the next two minutes, and then it's just dead silence for two minutes. There are kids who can't make it 10 seconds. You know, they're, they're like, silence! Ah, it's so noisy! I can't take it! And, so, and, and they get better at it. They do get good at it. And it's, and it's, it's two minutes. It's, try 30 minutes. I lose my mind. I've been trying to extend my, my capacity for silence. And it's not great right now. I, I tried to do uh, silence this last Monday night in my prayer time. And somebody texted me and I called them right back. Hey, how you doing? What did you need? Please talk to me. It's been, normally when I pray put on some music and there's noise and I pray out loud and it's, and it's nice and loud in here. I try to do silence, almost lost my mind. I don't know how to be alone with God. I'm not good at it. I'm working on it. So we're going to talk about that. What does contemplative worship mean? What does it look like? What does it look like when, when we just try to be with God? We don't bring Him anything. We don't do anything for Him. We don't give anything to Him. We don't sing for Him. We just sit with Him. We're going to talk about that. I hope you'll come back for all three. Because I believe when we align our lives right, when we do it right, when we learn how to worship, everything else falls into place. Because that's how God made us. That's what we intended. Let's go to the table.